Amen. Well, good morning. I'm excited for us to be together. If, if you're visiting with us, you, our, our meat and potatoes is generally preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been on an extended journey through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to take a break for a time. We're going to come back next year to talk, about, to talk about the life of a guy named Joseph. Uh, but this morning, we're going to begin a new series on the church. And before we dive in, I want to offer you some context as to why we would have a series on the church at all. I mean, don't, don't all of us here know what the church is and why the church is here? Well, if I could be frank, one of the, one of the things that provides context for this is COVID. <laughs> COVID, is, as you know, has swept the world, and there was a time in 2020 where it basically had everything shut down for weeks. Businesses, schools, churches shut their doors, some voluntarily, some by government mandate. And one of the good things, I think, to come out of COVID, if there can be such a thing, is that it has caused all of us to have to get back to basics. It has caused businesses to have to reconsider their products, their services, how they deliver those products and services in a safe and easy way. Schools have had to think about how to provide education in a sort of remote setting and also some of the struggles of that, right? And, and with all of this in mind, they've had to do this without sacrificing the original intention of the organization. And churches have had to ask the same fundamental, foundational questions. And it is these questions that I want us to consider together in the weeks ahead. Questions such as, what is the local church? Why is it here? How does it accomplish? And what is it set out to accomplish? We want to consider these questions while also not compromising what Jesus has laid out for his followers So the goal of this series is to get us back to basics and to answer these core questions about the local church and to find these answers not informed by business practices or cultural expectations or government mandates, but by the Word of God. We want to answer every question with, what does God say about X? And to be honest, COVID, alongside the always brewing social issues of our day, have revealed that there's many churches that don't understand what exactly the church is and why it is here. It's revealed that many see the church as defined by a brand rather than a body, by its budget rather than as the bride of Christ, and governed more like a business than governed by God's Word. And so as we spend these next weeks together considering the church, this morning we're going to get to the ABCs, the very beginning of defining the church. And there's no better place to look than where Jesus first spoke to us about the church. So find in your Bibles Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and we find Jesus in the middle of his ministry, and Matthew records this interaction between Peter and Jesus. So find Matthew chapter 16, whether you have a Bible or a device or whatever you have, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. Let's look at this together. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. So here in Matthew chapter 16, we find Jesus, or we find Peter in an unusual place. Peter was known to answer Jesus' questions in exactly the wrong way. (laughs) When Jesus asked a question, you often didn't want to answer the way Peter answered it, but here in Matthew 16, rather than missing the point, he got an A+. He answered Jesus' question correctly. Jesus isn't merely a good teacher or even a prophet. Rather, Peter's declaration is clear. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is Messiah, Savior, Son of God, 100% man, 100% God. And because of this, Jesus says, Peter forms a sort of foundational role for the church, and he says, I'm going to give you the keys of authority to bind and loose. And we see that Peter, originally named Simon, receives his name Peter, just like many of the patriarchs in Israel, the people we've been reading about in the book of Genesis, right? He's given a new name. Simon is now Peter or Petros, the rock. And it's upon the rock that Christ would build his church. This is one of the first places where Jesus he talks about the church explicitly, in his ministry. And it's important that we see when the New Testament speaks about the church, it does it from two perspectives or two senses. Look in your notes here. We see that the first sense is that the church is universal, that the church is universal. So see this, there's one sense in which the church is all of God's people throughout time and space, that every believer is a part of the church. Consider Ephesians 5.25, and we're going to come back to Ephesians 5.25 later, but look at this. Husbands, love your wives. That's a good reminder there, right? Husbands, love your wives. Then the relevant part, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So notice, Jesus died to ransom the church, his people. And the word for church used Throughout the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. And so, in one sense, the church isn't just people who gather in one particular place, but the people of God who gather throughout time gather together by the gospel. There's one sense in which we in here are a local church, but there's a sense in which there's believers everywhere, right, across the globe, and they are the church. Even the saints in heaven are described as a church. Look here in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Look at this. But you have come, believer, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and feastal gathering, and to the assembly, 
That's the word ecclesia, the word church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So from one perspective, the church is universal, accompanying all believers everywhere, even all believers that have ever believed. This is certainly Jesus's primary meaning in Matthew chapter 16, that he says what makes someone a part of the universal church is that they build their life on the same confession Peter built his life on. Peter's name means rock, but there's a larger rock, the confession that he makes on which the church is built. What makes someone a part of God's people is that they can confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And so historically, how, th- how the, the smart theologians and the old dead guys have said this is that the universal church has been called the invisible church. And it's invisible because you can't see the whole gathering of God's people together at one time, right? You can't see the believers here and the believers in Peru at the same time with your physical eyes. It is invisible to us, at least right now. One day it won't be, right? One day we'll see all God's people gathered together on a new heavens and a new earth. But for now, the church, there's a universal sense. There's an invisible sense. But the scripture also speaks of a second sense when it talks about the church. It says that the church is local. That the church is local. The invisible church is made at least partially visible through local churches. People throughout time are seen and touched in space and time through local congregations. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Do you see it? He says, the assembly of Christians in Corinth that meet there at that place in Corinth, they are called a church. And they're a subset of, a part of the universal fellowship of believers, all who call in every place upon the name of the Lord. Consider Paul, he writes over a dozen letters, and each of his letters is to independent assemblies where the invisible is made visible. Think about the book of Ephesians, written to the church in Ephesus. Again, first and second Corinthians, written to the churches in Corinth. Or consider the apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation to seven churches individual, unique, autonomous assemblies of churches. And even as early as 1 Corinthians, which is written in about the mid-50s AD, that's about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead, we see that there were multiple churches in Galatia. See this in 1 Corinthians 16.1. Look at this. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Look at that. As early as 20 years after Jesus has, has risen from the dead, there's apostles on the earth, there were different individual local churches throughout Galatia. So we can speak generally about the church as all of God's people, 
everyone who's been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, everyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we must also speak about the church as a local assembly of God's people in a particular place and time. In fact, the majority of the places where the New Testament uses the word church, it's speaking about the local body, not about the universal church everywhere. And yet, the universal or the local church is often set aside. The local church is often pushed aside. Current trends show that the average church attender attends 1.2 times a month or about once every six weeks. Since COVID, live streams have replaced the gathering in the minds of many. And while the live stream and podcasts are a service and a supplement and a good thing, they cannot take the place of the local church. In fact, from the local church perspective, nothing can replace the local church. At least from the New Testament perspective, nothing can replace the local gathering of believers. It is vital and essential to your Christian life. Hear this. The local church is not an optional addition to your Christian life, but it is a crucial component of God's plan for your life. Let me, let me be clear here. As good as it can be to get together with your buddies, even Christian buddies, it cannot replace what God has designed in the local church. And so let's consider together what, what exactly makes, what exactly is the difference between a Christian cookout and a Christian church? What's the difference between you just getting together with a bunch of believers and, and the church being together? Let's consider together the definition of the church. You're speaking about the local church. What makes a local church the local church? See this in your notes, and we're going to work through this definition together. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together with a common faith in Christ a common commitment to one another, and a common mission to extend the gospel to the world. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together with a common faith in Christ, a common commitment to one another, and a common mission to extend the gospel to the world. Again, we're going to spend time breaking down this definition together because I don't want you taking my word for it. I want you to see this in God's Word. So first, before we even get to the three points, you can already kind of see the three-point sermon, can't you? Common faith, common commitment, common mission. Before we even get to that, we need to consider the first part of the definition that the local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together. A church, by definition, gathers together. Look back at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. See this. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As I said earlier, Matthew 16, 18 uses the word ecclesia, which translates as church. And if you did a word study on this and you found the places ecclesia is used, you would see that it simply cannot be understood apart from assembling together. A church without a gathering is a church that isn't churching. <laughs> Look at this in Acts chapter 1. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 1 verse 13. And when they had entered, the, this is the disciples, the apostles, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John's and James and Andrew, 
And Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all these were of one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in about 120, and he said. And then he goes on to preach this sermon, and they set aside Matthias to be the apostle who would replace uh, Judas. Now, notice a few things. Now, a lot of folks make a big deal out of, well, look, the early church met in homes. And yes, the early church did meet in homes. But notice that as they were gathered together in these homes, they had 120 people present in it. Any homes here willing to host all of us next Sunday over for worship? Because these early homes, many of them, particularly for the wealthier, had upper rooms in which they could hold wedding banquets, large gatherings, because they didn't have places to rent. They didn't necessarily have buildings to do that. They opened up these upper rooms to meet. And so in the earliest gathering of the church, Acts chapter 1 It certainly was a house church with 120 people present. And then in the very next chapter on the day of Pentecost, we see the church adding nearly 2,000 people to their number. Imagine the parking that next Sunday. 120 to over 2,000 the next week. How would you begin to add 2,000 people to just an informal get-together? Notice they had record of those who were there. Acts 1's clear. It's counting who's there. They're keeping track of what families are showing up. It says that they baptized those 2,000 and they added them to their number. There was some sort of counting and keeping of, of record keeping. They kept some track of each other and of the attendance of their assembly. This wasn't just some informal hanging out in the basement. There was much more going on here when they gathered together. Consider the word ecclesia can even refer to a secular gathering or an assembly. You can look this up if you're curious. Write this down. You can read this later today. In Acts chapter 19, the word ecclesia is used three times in that chapter to refer to a riot that Paul caused in Ephesus. That big riot, that big get-together, it's a that's an ecclesia. That's an assembly of people together. And friends, this is even true in Paul's letters. When he wrote to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper, notice what he says. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. he says this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church. I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, and I believe it, in part. The assumption is not if they are gathering together, but he says when you're gathering together. That sounds a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he begins to speak about not if you pray, but when you pray. Not if you fast, but when you fast. Not if you give, but when you give. The implication is clear. This is something that's naturally expected for believers to do, not just to come together, but to come together as a church. And the Corinthians, he said, were divided. They were taking the Lord's Supper separate rather than being assembled together in unity and partaking of one cup 
and one bread. The church is a group of people, a group of Christians who regularly gather together, but the local church isn't just a bunch of Christians standing in the room together. There's a lot more than just getting together because Christians gather together with a common faith, a common commitment, and a common mission. Let's consider that the local church has a common faith. They gather together with a common faith. Recall back in Matthew 16 that the church is built upon the rock. Look again, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, some have taken this to mean that the church was built upon Peter and upon a priesthood that can be somehow traced back to Peter, but that misses the whole point, because if you're to read the very next section in Matthew 16, you see Peter blowing it so bad that Jesus refers to Peter as Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> and friends, this reminds us that if any church is built upon the foundation of one man or a pope or even one powerful family, that church is destined to fail. Friends, if our church becomes built around me, this church is destined to fail. Any local body built around one person other than Jesus is destined to fail because Christ's church is built upon the rock of Christ and his message. In fact, Jesus tells us that in Matthew chapter 7. Look at this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. Peter would write that Jesus is the rock in his first epistle in around chapter 2, and he would echo what the, what the apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we see the church of Jesus Christ is built upon him as the rock and upon a common faith in Christ. Now, I don't think this means that we have to agree on every issue. I don't think this means that everybody in here has to see every little issue going on in the world exactly the same way. And too many churches are too willing to split over very side and unimportant issues. I see this all the time with the worship wars, if you remember that. It's, it's the first church of traditional down the road and the, church, and the first church of contemporary down here across the street. Is that really what we want? would want to found a church upon? I think it's clear, though, that churches should be united in a common doctrine and practice. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 to 6. Look at this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians defines the church's unity as ultimately in the Holy Spirit, but also in the fact that there is one Lord, one faith, and one 
baptism. And I think that verse is really helpful for us. One Lord, that we're to share a common confession of who Jesus is. That one faith, we should share a common idea of what Jude describes. Jude talks about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Paul talks about issues of first importance. We should share an understanding of what Jesus came to do and what the Christian life looks like. He even says one baptism, that our church should be on the same page about things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are not unimportant issues. And so many churches treat them as if they're side issues when we're told this is where the church's unity should be around. Just like Peter in Matthew chapter 16, we should not only confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but mean the same thing when we say it. Have you ever given much thought to what our church believes about who Jesus is, what baptism is, what the gospel is, what it means to be a Christian? Because we're meant to gather together with those things in mind. And hear me, there are self-proclaimed churches even in our city that have a variety of wild answers to these core questions. Don't think just because you're in Katie's that everything that calls itself a church is really a church. The church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together with a common faith and practice, a common doctrine and life. But the church also gathers together with a common commitment to one another, with a common commitment to one another. Look at, back at Matthew 16 and look at verse 19. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here Jesus describes the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing, and it really doesn't seem clear upon first reading what in the world this means. But Jesus talks about it again over in Matthew 18. So flip over there, and Matthew 18 is the place you often hear people quote from where they say where two or three are gathered together. That's where the church is. But friends, there's a lot more going on in that text. Look at this, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, see it, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's a lot going on here and stuff we're going to have to look at a little more in the future, but let's, let's talk about what's clear here. Matthew 18 seems to indicate that having the keys of the kingdom means having a shared concern for the souls of others. If you were to be able to read this in the original Greek, Matthew 18, all of the yous in this passage would be plural. So we'd be saying, all y'all with the keys, use them right. Right, that he'd be using a plural you. And we see that part of this binding and loosing means not affirming someone in something that will destroy them. 
It means not affirming people in their sin. It means holding one another accountable to the doctrine and life we claim to profess. And though unpopular, Matthew 18 says that if someone continues steadfast in their sin, even after being lovingly approached, Jesus says, take it to the church, the body of believers, and the church should make the judgment. They're to be considered a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, they're to be considered a false professor without a true saving knowledge of Christ. Matthew 18 says the local church is given the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose one another's status in the kingdom of God. And Jesus promises to be with us in a unique way as we do that. There's a particular kind of gathering together that Jesus promises to be among. He does this in the book of Revelation in the opening chapters where he talks to the churches. It says that Jesus walks among those churches. And friends, Jesus walks among our church, and we, would, and we want him to be found happy with what he sees. We're called to have a commitment and a concern for one another. See, many of us would describe the church as a family, while few of us would treat the church as a family. We would rather treat the church like we would treat restaurants by the interstate, or any restaurant in Katie's, really. If it's new, I got to go get it. And I got to tell all my friends of how good this restaurant is. Or does it have the best music, the best service, the best preaching, the best experience? Friends, we've made the slogan of the church more like the slogan for McDonald's. We've said, have it your, have it your way. Well, friends, that's the exact opposite of what this is all about. Because maybe the point of the local church is that you don't get it your way. To quote Lilo and Stitch, Ohana means family, and family means no one gets left behind or forgotten. And in the church, it means we are family, and that means you shouldn't just get up and leave when things get hard or awkward. And let me tell you, they will. Hang out with people long enough, you're going to have an awkward interaction here or there. There's a reason that the book of Ephesians, one of my favorite commands in the Bible, he says, put up with one another. And so if you aren't a little annoyed and having to put up with people, maybe we're not fully living in church community as we should. Church isn't meant to be the place where you get served the best, but rather the place where you serve the best. Let me be frank, church isn't about you. And friends, We should be a tight-knit family that's willing to speak lovingly and graciously into the issue of other people's life out of love and for the good of their soul. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about the body. He describes the church as a body, and he says, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. But if the ear should say, because I am not an ear, and I, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an, were an, or if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single Member, where would the whole body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one 
body. Aren't we glad that our feet don't just up and leave us when things get hard? And yet, so many of us are quick to do that with the local church. Aren't you glad your ears don't just take off to the place that might have cooler, more pleasant music? Or your eyes take off to the place that might have a better-looking pastor? So many do that. So many are quick to leave the body when the body is simply often doing the work of curing disease in your life. We've talked a lot about the immune system amidst all of these things with COVID, and yet so many of us want to jump ship when the church body's immune system works into our life and someone comes to us with a loving concern about what they might be doing or where their life might be headed Friends, there are some people that don't care if they get sick. They go, hey, I know Jesus has given an immune system within this body to care for me, but I'm going to go lick doorknobs all I want. <laughs> and yet the community of the church is meant to help you heal from the sicknesses of your sin and that it might make bitter medicine sometimes. That might, have to, that might mean taking bitter medicine Sometimes. And Jesus reminds us of an incredible promise. He says that he will build his church. This is his house being built, not ours, not mine, not any one of yours. And thus, we should take seriously our commitment to a local body. The church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together with a common faith and practice, a common commitment to one another. And finally, the church gathers together with a common mission to extend the gospel to the world. I'll be brief here because that's actually part of what Nick is going to be preaching on next week when he talks about the mission of the church. But let me just say this. We would expect every member of a football team to be able to run the ball. And so, friends, every member of the body should be able to run the ball of ministry in their own way. Sometimes they need to be defense, offense, and, and that depends on giftings and how that looks. But every one of us should be able to share about the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's confession should be clear as day to us. In fact, our church must realize that God has given each of us a role to play in the mission. None of us are here just to fill a seat. Ultimately, everything we do as we go deeper in the word and deeper in community is meant to go out from us into our city and the world. The, the world needs the church because the church has the gospel. And friends, that means that this isn't a social club focused inwardly, but rather a battleship ready to storm the gates of hell with the promise that it will not prevail against us. Jesus promises us that. So some of you may ask, after all of this, what am I to do with this? Well, first, let me say, there's a lot more to be said in weeks ahead. So if you had a, well, what about X, Y, or Z? We've got about five more weeks to chat about it. So you feel free to talk to me about it. But also, I'd encourage you to stick along for the next several weeks together. But let me offer three closing applications. Let me speak first to the church. To you who are involved here, let Matthew 16 encourage you 
that the gates of hell may prevail against the culture, may prevail against the media, may prevail against political parties, or even against our nation. But when you invest your time and treasures in the local church, it is toward a cause that the gates of hell will not prevail against to the church here. Your investment here is secure. In your time, in your treasures, you give it toward the transformation of lives across the globe for the gospel. You give it toward the care of the sick and suffering, even this week. You give it toward having ramps built, toward food baskets, toward preaching the gospel. You see grace radically change lives. And friends, you may not always visibly see it with your eyes, but friends, it's going on. It's going on. We're praying for folks when needs are sent in. We're, we're helping folks who need meals. We're building ramps. We're reaching out. We're doing so much. Let me encourage you, as you give your time and treasure to the local church, know it's being used by God for his glory. And be encouraged that any sacrifice you make will be worth it in the kingdom of God, the rock-solid security that the gates of hell will not prevail. So thank you for all of those who are all in on a local church. Second, I want to speak to the church-less. There are those who may be without a church family, not due to moving, let's say, or not due to trying to find one as quickly as they can, but just because they said, I, I don't really need the church. They're without a commitment to others, they're, or they're spending an unusual amount of time. The term is dating a church. They're like, well, I mean, I've been visiting for three years, and I don't really know if this is the spot for me yet. Like, at some point, you got to put the ring on it and dive in, right? At some point, what you see is what you get. So the word from, the, from God's word would be stop claiming to love Jesus while rejecting his bride. There's some of that bitter medicine we talked about. Jesus established the church, both universal and its local expressions. And the Bible says, you need the local church. I need the local church. And it was established to be an imperfect, to be a place for imperfect people to be transformed into the people that God has called them to be. That the Christian life is meant to be a church-filled life. And that the mission of God was given to the church. And I believe that God knows far better than any of us how to accomplish his mission. Let me, let me ask you to consider the words from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Listen to this. Listen to what Spurgeon has to say. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, had I found one, I should have soiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it, the local church, is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty. But that's no excuse for you're not joining it if, it is, if you are the Lord's. No need your own faults keep you back 
For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can to derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. Hear this. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they nourish and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Now you see why I named my cat Spurgeon, right? He just lays it right out there to say we need each other. So to the church list, the encouragement from this series and from this text would be to find a group of local believers who gather together with a common faith, commitment, and mission that is defined by the Bible and give yourself to those people. And finally, let me speak to the church hurt. To the church hurt because church hurt is real. Some of you have been very hurt by communities in the past, and I am so, and I'm sorry for what folks who claim to be believers have done. And, and you might be surprised how much those who lead churches and their spouses understand what church hurt is like. Well, let me offer you a word of exhortation. Again, I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what's happened to you, but I want to remind you of one who does. We'll get to the central point in a second, but look at Ephesians 5.25. Look at this. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see it? Christ gave himself for the church. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again on the third day to save a sinful bride. He's seen everything you've done, everything you've ever thought or will do, and he chose to pursue after you anyway. God demonstrated his love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hear this, to the church hurt. No one has experienced more church hurt than Jesus, and he ain't given up on her yet. Because to give up on his church would mean to give up on you, and he hasn't given up on you yet. In fact, he has a purpose for his body. He has a purpose for his church, and it's his purpose for all of creation. Look at verse 26 as we, we're, we're rounding down here. Look at this. He gave himself that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is in the business of recreating all things. And like all good change, he begins close to home. Slowly and surely, Jesus is cleansing his bride, his church, and making us more holy, washing us with the water of the word. And that doesn't mean any of us have all the answers. None of us are here because we're perfect, but exactly the opposite. We're here because we need help in the journey. We need help, and we need a family, and we may not be perfect, but our Savior is. And today, you can meet him. You can meet Jesus and become a part of his bride. You can experience the full and free forgiveness of your sins, the hope of eternal life, adoption into God's family, and God will begin the process of washing you in order to one day present you with splendor without spot or wrinkle. You may see all your blemishes today, but through faith in Jesus, there's coming a day when you will no more be defined or controlled by your sin. So there, there's an invitation even now where you are to call upon the name of the Lord and he will meet you right where you are. And do not delay in doing so. 
but to have him meet you right where you are today. And one day, the various local churches, the true churches made up of gospel people will be united together in a heavenly assembly. There's going to be a a huge church merger when Jesus returns. (laughs) And we're going to be with all sorts of brothers and sisters. And friends, heaven won't have a live stream. Heaven won't have worship every six weeks. Rather, the church, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, there the bride will meet with her bridegroom. Let me close with this from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Look at this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty pearl of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linens, bright and pure, for the fine linens is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And may we here at Crossroads live our lives, pursue after the lost in our mission, and commit ourselves to one another in light of that day. Let's pray together. Father God, you love your church far more than any of us could. And we know that ultimately you're the senior pastor of this church. You're the shepherd and you are now calling any and all who have not trusted in you as their savior and master and Lord. You're calling them now to come to you that you've given yourself that they might be forgiven. You died bearing the very bearing the, the wrath of God in their place, that they could be restored to you through repentance and faith. You rose again for their forgiveness of sin and for their justification, that they would be set right and in right relationship with you. And so I pray if there's any here within the sound of my voice that hear this, that they would come to you through repentance and faith in this moment, calling out to you to meet them right where they are. And I pray that For the rest of us who have done that, that we would commit ourselves to your local body. That we treat church so flippantly that you didn't come to establish a McDonald's. You came to establish a people. And people, yes, spread among local assemblies and bodies that gather together and worship as they see your word. Call them to worship and teach them to worship. But bodies that we're meant to take seriously. I pray we'll see ourselves as a, part of the, as a part of that body. I pray we'll let go and lay down any burdens and hurts that have been brought to us here and seek forgiveness for those things from those who've hurt us or that we have hurt. And I pray that in all this church does, you would receive the glory and the honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.
Lord, you are my fortress. Oh, you are my portion. You are my hiding place. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe you are the way, the truth, the life. I believe through every blessing, through every promise, through every breath I take. I believe that you are provider, oh, you are protector, you are the one I love, oh, I believe you are. saints gather and we sing together it is a picture of that invisible made visible that future revelation 19 vision just a picture of that here among us today 
and we close our service with a benediction from God's word. This from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.